Wet paper, dried flowers, musty hay-like aroma. This is good bread. Hay, rain, smell when it rains, chalky, wet plaster. I'm Lucy Dearlove. This is episode three, A Common Language. These are quotes from a book called Sensuous Knowledge by Mina Salami. She says... A revolution means turning something on its head, but the method that prevents a return is to change what's actually inside the head. Dry flour, sawdust, chaff. And I I always hold some version of that logic with me when I'm trying to examine how we build new and better systems, and it's really hard. Fruity musty, stems of dried fruit, animal. And we have constantly gone back to an old way of thinking and it's very, very hard to break out. Baker Kimberly Bell and artist Ruth Levine are undertaking a project called The Body Lab, aspiring to reimagine how we qualitatively measure grain. Over the past two episodes, we've heard about the metrics currently used when processing grain and how a drive towards bread aesthetics might be impacting our potential to rethink this system and how it affects farmers, millers and bakers. In the same book, she also talks about um, the need for a new language. And that's been something we've been challenged by because intuitively we, we felt that we needed a new common language to talk about the characteristics of grain and wheat specifically, in order to build some agency in our small-scale artisanal movement. But I think it's really important to be be careful with that, because we we were quite naturally drawn to trying to bring a common language for the purposes of control. I mean, this kind of disconnection is not just, it's not something I've observed just with customers in the bakery, which in a way is is really understandable, because, you know, these people are from all kinds of backgrounds, with all kinds of professions and all kinds of occupations. And they they don't think about food all the time. But I'm kind of also fascinated by how food workers engage and what stops them from having more kind of embodied connection with their work. And so some of the work we've done through the Body Lab project has involved pulling food and hospitality workers together around the idea of tasting wheat which is a challenging idea. So we set up a workshop with a sensory scientist, Alice from the Nottingham University, and she led us professionally through a sensory workshop. And what we did was we tasted cold, unsalted pasta made with three different wheats, which is extremely challenging. (laughs) (laughs) Because most people don't have, well, most people don't, don't have a preconception of what wheat tastes like which is really interesting for a start. So when you get them around a table and actually get them to think about it quite deeply and reflect on it, being guided by a facilitator, it's quite mind-blowing for everyone involved. And so we spent three hours tasting these three different wheats in the form of cold pasta. And Alice was recording descriptor, like flavour descriptors and taste descriptors and other observations that we made about what we were doing. There's a lot of giggling. Some people went in deeper than others, and some of the descriptors were quite hilarious. Hard plastic, Lego, multi-ale, 
Leather. Incidentally, the reason we chose Richard cold pasta like was because pasta. tasting Sweet bread is quite complex because you have all the fermentation and the salt and the crust and crumb ratios and things like that. So you're not really tasting the wheat, whereas a flour water pasta is really just tasting the crop. Honey, like heather honey, buttery, oily smell, courgette. I mean, we went in so deep, someone was saying like one of the flavour descriptors was it's the smell of my grandparents' cellar floor. Toasted rice, like when rice cooks onto the bottom of a pan. Barley, cooked barley flavour. Roasted, toasted. It was an amazing activity to undergo with lots of bakers. But also the takeaway for me was actually because we'd spent that three hours with the intention of tasting wheat, we suddenly found where we couldn't pull anything out in the beginning. We gave our attention to it. And then by the end, we were pulling out like strong opinions about what these things tasted like. Raw sesame or sunflower seed like. Sesame seed, roasted sesame seed, pumpkin seed, chestnut, meaty. And at the end, when we when we ate our lunch and the flavours were so intense, it was such a an important reminder of how our body and our 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 palate, our kind of sense of taste and smell, is a tool. That if we don't use it, it becomes ineffective. We set ourselves this intention of using it for this period of time, and we found that we were tuning or honing our Hard kind of bodily pastry, skills. Lactic like milk or cream, brown butter, lard. And it made me think, well, if we could do that so easily in such a short space of time, what else could we hone? What else have we dumbed down? And what are we missing in terms of our own ability to make these observations and judgments that might actually be quite helpful? Like cacao nibs, carbon. There was something poetic in that for me, reflecting back about the industrial system and the way that the industrial food system gives us or tells us what's good or tells us how we should measure quality. Flavour like internal part of courgette of lettuce stems. Avocado, oily green flavour of avocado, green grape skin. And I think at the detriment of us actually just spending some time engaging and, and trusting our own senses a little bit. Well, we came out of that or a number of different things that we've done that have Um, elements that stayed with us I think and one of them was coining those phrases intention and attention and that that became I think quite an important framing and it's really a a tool to say that we mindfully focus on this and it all of the knowledge is here already we just need to kind of practice it and I think listening back to the words that, that everyone described for me there was such a depth of um, seeming randomness of describing these sensory experiences, but somehow they were all relatable. Maple syrup, dry wood, raw and aged dry wood, minerally, reminiscent of fresh minerally streams, certain mineral waters. And then when you go back and then compare that to a graph with kind of, you know, numbers and all the kind of metrics that are most dominantly used, you kind of already immediately see how unrelatable those can be. Not always, but, you know, in terms of the experience of tasting, the words and the descriptors that we use actually are really, really important for experiencing and sensing. Tannic, dry sensation in the mouth, metallic, mild metallic, 
rainwater, vegetal, warming, cooling, astringent. I'm feeling these as soon as I got to metallic. I'm feeling these in my mouth. It's mouthfeel textures. This is the last one. Round. <laughs> See, that would have made that would have made total sense. Every there would have been twelve people going, yeah, yeah, that's totally round. Alice was talking herself about, you know, like as soon as you put certain different languages or all sorts of things, you're you're affecting how you think you're tasting or experiencing these things. So you kind of realise how deep and complex these kind of like Short barriers are away to in the mouth. shifting our confidence away from us of what we understand to what somebody else soft, knows best. Help, soft granular, smooth like backpack chestnuts. Firm, has a bit more bite than others. Gummy, gelatinous, sticky, cloying like cooked rice texture, porridgey, sticky. Somebody definitely did say, I think it's kind of been broken down. This is the analytic part, but I think it's been broken down, but it, it was a story that unraveled between people. So someone said sheep, then I think someone said wet sheep, and then someone went back and said yeah but you know like on a drizzly day on a hill far away <laughs> but also i remember emily said that one of them tastes like the smell of tulips in her grandparents garden and that isn't made the cut so already our academic is filtering <laughs> this is what happens the poetic doesn't get space <laughs> When Kim and Ruth started out with their thinking and working around the body lab, as they've explained, they wondered whether they could simply create an alternative test or system of testing that approached grain differently. The inquiries they made around creating a common language in order to achieve this, of which this sensory workshop was one, was in pursuit of this idea. But they realised somewhere along the way that what they were trying to do was somehow industrialise humans. And I remember one point when we had all the bakers round the table, we started talking about the fact that essentially we were trying to calibrate all the different bakers' understandings and that we were <laughs> like adapting these bakers to become a machine <laughs> that could speak to each other across the board, level the playing field so we could all produce or understand what we were using to produce stuff. Yeah. So there's this, this constant obsession, yeah, this obsession <laughs> with trying to make everything the same so that we can reproduce and have consistency. And that's where the body lab kind of reveals kind of where the industrial meets the the kind of human thing and how which one's taken over which and how there's some unpeeling to do with kind of freeing ourselves a little from our industrialised, mechanised mindset because we present ourselves as, you know, that we've got this artisan baking kind of movement that has a kind of, isn't associated with that at all, isn't associated with those industrial metrics, but at the very heart of it, it still is. Mm. As Ruth put it to me in an email after our recording, our journey to discover this reflected the wider thinking behind the project. 
it revealed that in some way we have all very much embodied the industrial mindset. We discovered our desires to give clarity and names to everything, to make uniform in some way. But rather than chasing forward to, quote, fix the problem, we realised it became more about slowing down, starting where we are at and not being in pursuit, so we could go on our own journey of unschooling and discovering. But this sensory workshop, along with other sessions that Kim and Reef have hosted, helps them to understand that at the heart of this project must be the bakers. As Kim puts it to me, there are tight economic conditions imposed on bakers. And if they can be allowed time to play and collaborate and showcase, this can have a huge positive impact on the landscape of grain and bakeries within different places. This has already happened in Nottingham, where Kim is based. I think we could change the whole baking landscape if we could just encourage bakers to have to build an affinity to a crop that they love working with. I mean, I'm not advocating for being too rigid on what you will and won't work with. It's important to keep an open mind, but I love it when I see someone form a relationship to a crop and that can begin in the field. For me, the YQ has become a wheat that I've got a real affinity to. I know it. I think I could recognise it in a bake, you know, I could recognise its flavour or it doesn't matter what harvest it would be from wherever. And I'd love for other bakers to be able to do that and to be able to have maybe not a common language, but a confident language to describe how they would characterise it and to share that with as many people around them as they could in order to build some kind of autonomy in local and regional sort of grain decision making. There was this realisation that the Body Lab could help immensely by giving bakers permission to step out of their daily baking lives. The Body Lab could offer them a wider critical and political understanding of where they came from, support, dialogue, space to share, play, experiment, and ultimately fail. And they could offer them different grains to do this with. And the language-based sensory workshops could really help here too. If you practice trusting your senses and exploring how language can communicate familiar ideas, tastes, and sensations, even when describing something new or unfamiliar, the potential for positive impact is vast there too. So one of the ways in which you might approach a new harvest is to try to like in my mind what I'm doing is trying to take a make a character evaluation of the crop and that's maybe a good juxtaposition to put up against the industrial metrics and the way we talk about that in the bakery and the way we explore it through practice is building this kind of almost like a personality profile of this of this crop we also sell all of the flour that we use in the bakery so I pass that information on in soundbite ways to our customers to help them to use the flowers at home. And so I've had to not only come up with ways of characterising it within our own practice, but I had to come up with ways of communicating that characterisation to customers. So for example, with the YQ, we characterise it as quite a fragile flower in the bakery. But when I'm talking to the customers, I'll say it's a very soft flower and it's easy to digest and it's very flavourful and the flavour is very instantly accessible. So it makes very nice soft baked goods like cakes and breads that are easy to chew with like thinner crusts. What's interesting to me about that is that when we were discussing it in the context of the bakery, a lot of the descriptors are quite negative. (laughs) 
So we'll say it's a fragile flower that doesn't like can't stand much fermentation, you know, can't stand much acid, for example, I might say to a baker, but then I'll turn around and say all these really positive things about it to the customer. But all of that forms for me like this really important characterization profile, which is what I hoped we would achieve through some of the activity we've done under the body lab is to try to find ways to describe these crops not as a numerical reading but as a character with their own personality and a deep inherent value and to kind of explore these characteristics as opportunities rather than as problems which is a really different way of framing production I think and always having a sheaf there I think of the crop is really helpful and amazingly kind of um, just so powerful especially if you get the full length because it's just uh, there's just not something that you see every day for a lot of people and it's really beautiful especially if it's a kind of diverse population there's something kind of about honoring that when you kind of get to see the whole process and take the grain out yourself and even mill it sort of like slightly new relationship It's perhaps having listened to this conversation between Kim and Ruth, listening to them talk about the unrelatability of graphs and numerical readings to define the characteristics of wheat, a food at the end of the day. But when Fred Price, the farmer at Gothany growing diverse population wheats that Kim is baking with, tells me something about his future plans for the farm, it seems like a plot twist. No pun intended. After acquiring some funding... Fred is in the process of expanding his own research lab at the farm, buying some of the very machines, some of the very testing equipment that the group saw being used in their visit to the mill. 18 months later, I get an 80% grant fund through the FIPL, the Quantock FIPL here to buy three testing machines. <laughs> and I'm thinking, of it. yeah, you've just pointed out the kind of like uh, the irony of that. Um, so, so what, why? What, what's brought you to that? So, point? I think, and this is, I think, where so often the middle ground is the productive ground, the grey area. You know, it's not about being over here or being over there. It's about like being open and <laughs> diverse in all of your approaches, right? So, in the case of the trials, we have tested maybe four and a half, five thousand different varieties for their performance in organic or zero input systems and that's pretty straightforward and we've done that on the farm and we've let's say we now have a hundred varieties that I would be happy to grow at field scale but I have no idea what their baking quality is or how how what their functionality is so how do we get all of those 100 varieties to a scale where bakers can have that kind of like sensory interaction with and and build an understanding and a relationship with that grain in whatever they, way they do in the bakery to actually provide some feedback. And you can't do that at five kilos. You can't probably do it at 50 kilos. You probably need half a ton because there are so many variables. So really what we're saying is we're not going to try and make this scientific. We just want you to use this half a ton and see what you think and then really and tell me how it relates to other things or how you've used it. That, I think that's how I'm seeing the, the sort of sensory angle coming 
the problem with that is you can't do that with a hundred. <laughs> so for me, where the where machines come in is they they enable us to narrow that down using parameters that I think are useful. Certain parameters are useful. And then we can put our resources into the 10, let's say, and get those 10 to half a ton and then put the bakers, put it into the sensory analysis, the kind of qualitative woolly ground. This was really actually um, spurred by visiting Anders Borgen in Denmark. Mm. He's developed lots of different populations, but there's one population that took my eye called the Maritoba, which we subsequently brought some seed over mm. to the UK this year. And my understanding is that Martin Wolf's YQ is like a diversity project. So you've got 20 parents, all, all those 190 crosses, 600,000 genotypes. It's infinite diverse. That's, that's, that's what YQ is. But through that diversity, you lose some quality, some functionality maybe. And what Anna's had done is he'd created the crosses, he'd bulked them up, and then he kind of put like another filter in. And that filter was a glutamat machine to give him a gluten index, an idea of gluten quality. So it's, it is actually, interestingly, the kind of machines that we're using are actually really like functionality tests, qualitative tests, mm. rather than um, what is the, um, you know, I'm trying to think what is the protein. It's about, it's about the relationship between them. It's about understanding how they can be used rather than whether they're bad or good. Nothing is bad or good. I think it's about, you know, being in control of them. <laughs> and I think that's where we've got to, these big industrialized systems, that you wonder actually who, where is the control now? Is it the system that dictates what the wheat is? Or can we be like more adaptive in our processes? And then that enables us to decide what wheat we need to grow. You know, at what point do you set your intention? For me, it's these weeds make a lot of agronomic sense. So what systems do we need in place to make me be able to grow these weeds? And a baker will have a slightly different thing and, and a breeder will have a slightly different thing. So then the participatory breeding is to bring all those people together. Mm. And there's room for all of those things, I think. So maybe body lab is more for me, if I give you my definition of body lab, it's not about whether it's a sensory test or a quantitative test. It's more about body, it's about people, right? Like a collective body, is that what you mean? Yeah, so in a, in a sense, we're all part of the same organism, yeah. Mm. But you just gave me that idea. That wasn't my <laughs> idea, that was your idea. I think I do understand Fred's desire to explore a more empowered use of these machines. Even if, if I'm being 100% honest, it feels very different to me, to the sensory embodied work that Ruth and Kim have been exploring with the Body Lab. And Rosie corroborates the idea that we touched on, that the body in Body Lab isn't just about individual embodied knowledge, it's collective too. Sometimes you touch something and you think through what its further destination will be based on an experience you've had before. So I can feel a dough at the end of a mix before it's even started fermenting and have a better idea than at the flower stage of where it's gonna go based on how it mixed. 
And also being the miller in this chain, in this kind of system, I have some control there, whilst I think a lot of people won't be the miller. They'll be the baker that just mixes with a flour that's given to them. So I have a bit more control there to change things if, if I'm not happy with them as well. I think mainly this kind of baking for me since since I've been milling has been around empowerment and feeling like I have some agency to support a kind of farming and landscape biodiversity in the landscape that I want to encourage. So it's been a quite a powerful journey of feeling like I'm actually helping a situation that we're in at the moment. And I think a lot of bakers are actually quite environmentally engaged and want to do something better. And mm. um, they just don't necessarily know how they can do that yet. The Body Lab to me is getting more people involved in food and enjoyment around food, coming together for bakers, which we need, coming together between bakers and farmers and millers and exploring the conversation of why we've got to the point that we have and the potential and the excitement around a more diverse, delicious food system in grain particularly, but actually it could be related to lots of different foods and nourishing our community in a way that we haven't before. So I think it's it's just really exciting, definitely, to be part of. I'd encourage any kind of workshop or space making for this kind of thing and also just to develop our own language around it and have time to even connect with our bodies how cool is that (laughs) back with kim and ruth they're thinking about some of the origins of the disconnection we as eaters have from our food system which feels very relevant to the body lab for me it's this is going to sound quite wacky but it seems to be a healing process because if you track back how we got to this industrial farming, it's it's quite fear-based. Like the decision-making has been around maybe post-Second World War need for food security. And I feel like there still is, even though we're, you know, maybe a generation away from that now, there's still this embedded fear and sense of responsibility that we must feed the people. And it strikes me as being a trauma. It's an understandable trauma, but I feel like we're going into different times and we maybe need to heal from that and look forward and and try to reconnect and stop being afraid of making personal decisions or judgments that are very human scale because someone else is telling you that there's a logic that's outside of your comprehension but they can just give you the the testing the readout the numbers and tell you why you need to do something I feel like the fear of getting it wrong or being unable to feed people has has disconnected us as a society to some extent. I think there's something around agency with that because when you were talking it reminded me of quite a few of the farmers we were working with in the early project and I remember having quite a strong kind of emotional conversation with one of them who, who kind of ended it saying, you know, we need to learn how to farm again and what they were referring to was kind of the chemical kind of farming had left them bereft of a lot of the decision making that they would have once made. And, you know, 
source that out to agronomists or and and this the wider kind of system and there is something about a parallel with that to do with a knowledge that we're holding within ourselves or that has been passed down that has been kind of slightly severed by having the systems kind of around us become kind of an industrialized um, metric kind of uh, number analysis um, kind of system so that everything's very the way of thinking is much more removed or given over to a sense of there's an expert that does that as opposed to kind of uh, inner confidence that we all kind of have to do with both growing in and tasting and eating and so there's a sort of putting it back into the body and trusting your own senses has become quite a I guess an important part of this project so this is I think something that the body lab really tried to kind of like not shy away from is what are the tools that we can give people to invite them to take one little step out to become aware of where they are at and what else is possible. So it's an invitation for reimaginings, but through something that's incredibly tangible and through something which is already somehow very bodily and that we already possess a lot of the knowledge and experiences and skills to do. I always think back to like farming analogies, things I have learned from really great farmers. And Martin Wolf always used to say like, diversity exists in the edges like where two species, plant species meet or where a hedge meets a crop or that's where like things blossom or new things are created. I'm really interested in this sort of sense of of newness and how we create newness. It's like such a mind-blowing idea. How do you create something new when new exists in the old? I love this kind of idea that diversity exists in the edges. So the more we can crash unusual ideas, people, conversations, species together, the more chance we've got of creating something new and wonderful that might actually help us break out of this thing. And like, it's actually in the conversations between those people that the kind of knowledge is born or some new knowledge is born or like... It's dialogue that happens whilst they're doing and they become excited kids again because they're relearning and seeing things from a new perspective. And they have really different perspectives as well. They all bring really different perspectives. Not sure if that's a conclusion. So, you know, one of the things about the Body Lab is that it's exploded, or is trying to explode this idea of what knowing is. You know, what are we actually measuring? What are we trying to find out? What are you trying to answer? Or what problem do you think you're trying to fix? And actually, it's none of those things. It's stepping back, widening our senses, widening the way we communicate how we know something or what we think we know. Because even through the very metrics and language that the industrial system's using, you are, you know, completely blocking out huge swathes of relating to and understanding the thing that you're measuring or thing that you're trying to make sense of. Does that make sense? (laughs) (laughs) No idea if any of this project has ever made sense. I think with this whole Body Lab project, 
me being, I'm quite a pragmatic person, I think maybe I came at it hoping that we would come up with something, some kind of really clever testing strategy that we could design and then show other people how to do it and that we would somehow come up with just a really a more beautiful version of the industrial testing metrics and well working with Ruth it, it quickly became apparent that I wasn't going to be able to get away with that as a simple solution but then it became conflicted because I was like where are we going with this how are we gonna get anything productive out of it but the thing it, it, it makes you, it's made me aware of, of my own limitations, like the limitations of my imagination. And this Body Lab project for us has just been a journey to just keep stretching our imagination with these groups, with these tasting and with other kind of facilitated workshops. But the attention, intention, attention, intention, I think is like really critical as a framework and I can't be more specific than that I don't think I'm allowed to to hone in on a testing strategy any more than that (laughs) what question is it that we're trying to answer through body lab and we we just set ourselves this almost ludicrous task of exploring how we could measure quality in wheat or in bread systems without referring to the industrial system and I think like personally I've been beating myself up about it ever since we first <laughs> asked that question because I mean I don't know and that's um, the point though isn't it <laughs> but we've also come up with you know we know what's not good that's the important bit <laughs> but we you know I think the thing that we've come up with is that there are kind of beliefs and societal structures that we haven't yet imagined that can solve this problem and that maybe the two of us just can't solve it on our own in this very, very short period of a project. But I think we've made some good inroads and yeah, we maybe have at least realised that we can't solve it by coming up with some faux alternative way of measuring or that everybody measures differently and that sort of diversity of viewpoint is actually what's really important and is what's going to help us to break out of these really reductive structures that have got a stronghold over our food system and our agriculture, is actually just giving voice to more people and allowing them to have agency within their own food system. In the same book, Sensuous Knowledge, Mina Salami talks about under the framing of a philosophy around black feminism and the idea that we must break out of these invisible structures that we're all bound by. She talks about needing a new language and one of the aspects of the new language, she says, we must convey a message of malleability and movement. And that's something I think that has become really apparent in this, to be able to change and be flexible seems like one of the most important tools that we need going forward to help support agroecology and a a new way of farming that will get us through the climate challenges ahead. And so how do we, as two individuals who've set ourselves this question of what would be a better way of testing, how do we advise other people how to take part in this idea without inadvertently coercing or controlling or kind of like determining what the outcome is going to be is the very difficult question, I think. How do we give other people agency 
through our investigations and how do we communicate that. In making this series, I wanted to reflect how this has been a learning experience for me. And I know many people listening will understand and know this industrialised testing system well, but there will also be many others who, like me, had no idea of how this huge-scale, opaque system worked. And I love that what's emerged from the work that Kim and Ruth have been doing is the idea of giving bakers permission to play and create and mess around with grain. And there are lots of people, bakers, millers, farmers, others, out there already doing the work and the play that it takes to build better embodied food systems. Like, this is a good point to say a huge thank you for all the people I've encountered along the way, for all the work that they're doing. But I also think more people, bakers or not, simply knowing about this, about this work that Kim and Ruth are doing, increases the potential for future change. I wanted to end by reiterating Ruth's words that I quoted earlier in the episode. Rather than chasing forward to fix the problem, we realised the body lab became more about slowing down, starting where we are at and not being in pursuit, so we could go on our own journeys of unschooling and discovering. Kim and Ruth continue to work on the Body Lab project and are currently exploring different routes to making the hidden industrialised metrics visible, to trusting their own instincts and creating opportunities to make the magical, emotional, poetic, spiritual, enchanting and aesthetic more part of our everyday and our daily bread. Good Bread is hosted and produced by me, Lucy Dearlove. The Body Lab is a project by Kimberly Bell and Ruth Levine, funded by Farming the Future. Thank you so much to Fred Price and everyone at Gothney Farm, including, of course, Rosie Benson at Field Bakery. Thank you to Chris Hollister and Shipton Mill for their openness and generosity in being part of Body Lab. Thank you to everyone who contributed to the breadline, who rang in. You can hear their responses in the previous two episodes. Thank you to everyone at Farmerama who has helped with this series in various ways. Joe Barrett, who was a fantastic exec on this. Abby Rose, Dora Taylor, Olivia Oldham, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins and Lucy Fisher. The music is by Owen Barrett. The fantastic artwork for the series was by Hannah Grace. And one more reminder that if you haven't already listened to Serial, the Farmerama series about bread, incredibly in-depth series made by Katie Revel a few years back, I really urge you to. It completely changed the way I think about bread and I don't think I could have made this series without having listened to Serial. So thank you, Katie, for the work she did on that. And thank you very much to you for listening. If you've enjoyed the series, please do consider rating and reviewing in the podcast app that you listen to. It really helps. Thank you.